Welcome to another night of Warrior Reads. As always, make sure that you've handled anything before bed, that the room is dark, and that you're in a comfortable position. Remember, as you're listening, if you get excited by a story or interested, don't worry about it. Now is not the time for your mind to be racing. Now is the time for your mind to be resting. As always, we'll have copies of the recordings available on our website, as well as even the ability to order it should you want to in the morning. Now is the time for your reward for a good day lived or a reminder to be a warrior tomorrow. I'll give you about five seconds to clear your head and then we'll begin. Welcome warriors. Tonight, our selection is from the book, Warriors of the Wild Lands. True Tales of the Frontier Partisans by Jim Cornelius. Tonight we'll be going through the story of Nzilikazi, King of the Matabele. Here is the story about a guy that makes no exceptions and demonstrates iron will. Nzilikazi was one of the great empire builders of South Africa and went toe to toe with Shaka Zulu the great Zulu emperor who conquered most of South Africa. Growing up in tribal South Africa in the early 1800s, Mzilikazi knew Shaka Zulu well and was even his best friend, probably because they both exhibited an unyielding desire to conquer, to be in charge, and to be the greatest that they could be, and neither of them knew how to quit. They grew together as warriors, but once Shaka Zulu ascended to the throne and rose to become the great emperor of a fierce nation, Mzilikazi wasn't really all that impressed. Shaka Zulu pinned Mzilikazi with an ultimatum. Give me a portion of your catalyst tax or face the consequences. A tax that Shaka Zulu placed on everyone, to be fair. The great emperor surely assumed that his childhood friend would also oblige. However, the same reason that they were such good friends would be the same reason that they would become mortal enemies. Mzilikazi didn't bow down to anyone and would rather die fighting than bend the knee. Not only did Mzilikazi outlive Shaka Zulu, and survive attacks from the greatest empire in that half of the African continent. But he rose to build his own empire, fight and win battles against the British, Dutch colonists, the Zulu, and local bands of tribes equipped with modern artillery. He would rise from tribal nomadic life in the plateau savanna lands of South Africa to become one of the most formidable forces in all of the region. All with his mastery, will to power, his shield, and his spears. Though it might be hard to call Nzilikazi a good man, or a shining example as a good Samaritan, it is, however, safe to say that Nzilikazi was good at being a warrior, and embodied the tactical virtues of strength, honor, courage, and mastery. He would rise from the ashes to power after having everything taken away from him. He would win battles 
and survive enemies, the likes of which nobody had ever seen before, and would ultimately continue conquering, even after old age left him crippled, ever continuing his fight for what he wanted, freedom, autonomy, and glory. And what's so different between 1800s Africa and today? We're all humans working for a brighter future. And what you want to build is still within your grasp. If only you reach out to pluck it. If you take action on your dreams and remember who you are, a hero on the warrior path. As always, you can read this book at any time in the future and it's worth the read. But as you let go of the day and the battles that you've won and lost and prepare yourself for the rest that you deserve, you may wish to reflect on Mzilikazi's unyielding spirit and inability to compromise and how those principles apply in your own life. So relax and enjoy. Mzilikazi, King of the Matabele, Summer, 1822, the lands of KwaZulu, Southern Africa. The Zulu emissaries were enraged and incredulous. Who did this Mzilikazi, this minor chief of a minor clan, think he was? It was insulting enough that he had kept them waiting, cooling their heels at his corral nestled in rolled, wooded country in the northwestern corner of the lands of the Zulu. Nobody kept the noble emissaries of King Shaka waiting. Worse, he had manhandled them and humiliated them, slashing the plumes from their headdresses with the sharp edge of his asegai and treading them into the dust. It was enough to make the aristocratic warrior princes quiver with rage. But most outrageous, most incredible of all, was Mzilikazi's open refusal to pay his cattle tribute to his king. Everyone in the lands of the Zulu understood how things worked. Mzilikazi had raided a neighbor's tribe, slaughtering a few men, capturing some likely women, and most importantly, taking a fine herd of cattle. Those cattle belonged to Shaka, his overlord and it was Mzilikazi's duty as a loyal vassal to acknowledge that fact by sending some of the cattle to Shaka's capital, Bulawayo. Mzilikazi had neglected his duty, and Shaka, who loved Mzilikazi as a friend and comrade in arms, had sent two noblemen to remind the young chieftain of his responsibilities. But Mzilikazi did not acknowledge his error or beg for forgiveness for his breach of protocol. No, he had insulted these Zulu aristocrats and told them in no uncertain terms that he would never pay tribute to Shaka. He must be mad. This was an act of rebellion. And in King Shaka's world, rebels died horribly, along with their people, men, women, and children. It was as though he had handed Shaka a traditional Asagai spear and begged the king to disembowel him. 
or perhaps impale him on a sharpened stick, or throw him over the river for the crocodiles to eat. As the emissaries stalked out of Nzilikazi's kraal, with as much dignity as they could muster, their magnificent plumes shaved away and their manhood insulted, they knew, as Mzilikazi knew, that there was only one outcome from this act of defiance. There would be blood. It cannot be known with certainty why Mzilikazi, the chieftain of a small clan of only a few hundred villagers, chose to defy the mighty king of the rising Zulu nation. The two young warriors had been friends, finding an affinity in their quick intelligence and physicality of two warriors in their prime in a time of war. The likely answer is simple enough. Mzilikazi was an alpha male. His friendship with the Zulu king meant that he was not overawed by Shaka. Mzilikazi, too, was quick-witted, ambitious, and capable. Why should he bend the knee to Shaka, or to any other man? Mzilikazi was born into the royal family of the Kumalo people, the son of Mashobe, and on his mother's side, the grandsons of Zuide, chieftain of the Ndwandewe. Like the Zulu, they were of the Nguni ethnic and linguistic group that had moved into southeastern Africa around 1500. To be born royal in southern Africa near the turn of the 19th century was to be born into danger and intrigue. For the Game of Thrones in this time and place was played as fiercely with stakes just as high as any medieval European kingdom. A military revolution was underway on the southeast coastal plain of the continent. Desolatory conflict primarily focused on cattle raiding was giving way to intermittent warfare of conquest and subjugation. From disorganized bands of men standing off and tossing throwing spears at one another with the modest effect, tactics were evolving into the deployment of powerful, coordinated formations designed not to disperse but to annihilate the enemy. As a Zulu war captain, Shaka developed tactics of close in-hand-to-hand -hand combat, relying on short, broad-bladed stabbing spears. The dreaded Asagai. A genuine military genius, the young Shaka Zulu rose to kingship through guile, diplomacy, and bloody-handed vengeance. Tradition has it that Shaka, who was feared and respected, but not loved, found in Nzilikazi a kindred spirit and friend. But Zulu society contained a fundamental contradiction that doomed the friendship of Shaka and Nzilikazi to fracture. Shaka's experiments in tactics and cohesion worked very well, and from it a nation was born, but a nation that held mixed blessings for men of exceptional gifts. Obviously vital, courageous and intelligent commanders were the lifeblood of the Zulu military structure. But equally, those that were too courageous, too vital, and too intelligent might rise too high, standing then an excellent chance of annihilation. 
It's not difficult from this to imagine what kind of an individual came to be recognized as Zulu. And also, how limiting and frustrating this would have been to a man of wit, imagination, and intellectual vitality, such as Mzilikazi. So the young Kuomolo chief broke the bond. The act was deliberate, and he must have brooded deeply over his bid for independence. Failure would mean a hideous death, not only for himself, but also for many, or perhaps all of his people. Driven by a will to power, no less fierce than Shaka's own, he took the plunge. He refused to pay the customary cattle tribute from his conquests. He insulted Shaka's emissaries. And then he prepared to meet the wrath of the Zulu king. My child has shit on me, was Shaka's response to Mzilikazi's act of defiance. It seems to have been uttered more in sorrow than in anger, and Shaka seems to have been reluctant to met out the prescribed punishment upon the man who had been his only real friend. He sent a punitive expedition out to the Ngome Hills, where Mzilikazi reigned. Having established defensive positions amid hills and cliffs, Mzilikazi turned the force away. Defeat might have meant execution for the Zulu warriors, but Shaka shrugged off the defeat and ignored the matter. Perhaps he conceded that Mzilikazi would beg forgiveness and come back to the fold, or do the wise thing and leave the country. Shaka was evidently prepared to let him escape, but Mzilikazi remained, and his presence became an affront that Shaka could not ignore. No tyrant can afford to show weakness, and Mzilikazi's defiance was making Shaka look weak, sentimental, even mawkish. Reluctantly, Shaka sent out one of his best regiments to bring his former friend to heel. This time, aided by the treachery of Mzilikazi's half-brother, the Zulu surprised Mzilikazi's forces, stormed their positions, and put them to root. Mzilikazi himself escaped with 300 warriors and virtually all of his women and children, who had hidden in a deep forest. Perhaps secretly relieved that his friend had survived, Shaka vetoed pursuit and allowed the Komolo to flee across the Drakensberg Mountains, east into the interior of southern Africa. Mzilikazi's Kumala warriors crossed the mountains and debauched the high plateau that would become the Transvaal. There, they fell in the villages of various Sotho tribes that inhabited the region. These tribesmen had none of the military organization and combat experience of the former Zulu clan, and they stood no chance of resisting the unprecedented onslaught. The Kumalo felt no qualms and made no excuses for their conquests. The Sotho had grain, cattle, and people. The Kumalo needed to survive, and they simply took it. A pattern was quickly established. At the command of Mzilikazi, the Kumalo 
would quietly surround village at night, then strike in the earliest gloaming stabbing villagers in their beds. They set fire to huts and slaughtered those who ran out. Women of breeding age were taken captive, along with surviving men of military age, who were absorbed into Nzilikazi's growing army. It was a cruel and highly effective mode of conquest. Much like the Apache and the Sioux, the conquerors were gifted their name by their enemies. The Sotho called them Matabele, the men who ducked behind their shields, which was based on their tactic of pressing stabbing attacks behind their body-covering shields. Nzilikazi's rampage through the Transvaal was not a path of endless slaughter. He built and organized an army and a state during the years of Exodus. It was organized along Zulu lines, although his Matabili people were becoming ethnically less Nguni, as more and more Sotho were forcibly absorbed into his state. Like Shaka, Nzilikazi was an absolute ruler, a tyrant with the power of life and death over every single one of his subjects. He ruled through fear like that of Shaka. But unlike the Zulu king, Mzilikazi also seems to have been genuinely loved by a people whom he provided unprecedented power and prosperity to. That their wealth was built on the abject misery of peoples they destroyed and dispersed or absorbed bothered them not at all. Such was the way of the world in South Africa through the 1820s. The South African frontier was a breeding ground for a wild and colorful mix of bloodlines and cultures. In the wild, disputed lands, there were nomadic groups of mixed bloods known variously as Grika and Korana. Among them were bands of bandits called Burganars. Organized in commandos like the white African Boers, they spoke Dutch wore motley European dresses and were well armed with flintlock muskets and mounted on small, sturdy horses that gave them extraordinary mobility. They were the most fearsome of desperados ever to ride the interior of South Africa. The Matabele had their altercations with all of the aforementioned groups. But when the Matabele hit the Orange River, they ran up against a new foe. A Boer commando was patrolling the banks of the river. And when they spotted the feather-headed regiment with their shields and spears, they opened fire on them with their muskets. The Matabele pulled back and gathered their covered cattle to return to their new homeland. The Boer fire was the first salvo in what would, within the decade, become a deadly war that would threaten the very existence of the Matabele nation. Despite his conquests, despite his military prowess and the power of his state, the Matabele were under great threat at the dawn of the 1830s. The Grikoa, Korana bandits, augmented by Sotho and Swana tribesmen, who had plenty of reason to seek revenge, continued to raid the Matabele cattle stations and Shaka's killer, Dingane, had not forgotten or forgiven Nzilikazi's defiance and rebellion. 
The Matabele king continued to fear the reach of the mighty Zulu nation. And in 1832, his greatest fear came to pass. The Dingane sent forth a punitive expedition that marched 300 miles into Mzilikazi's lands. The Zulu tore through the southern outposts of Mzilikazi's kingdom, killing men and rounding up cattle. A desperate Mzilikazi pulled together a force to meet the Zulu in battle. They clashed in an epic washing of the spears that left dead beyond counting upon the field. The Matabele were forced to yield the day, but the cost was high enough that the Zulu were forced to limp back to their homeland, bloodied without sufficient booty to justify their losses. Dingane expressed his displeasure in the traditional fashion. He had several of his generals executed. With enemies to the south and enemies to the east, Mzilikazi determined to move further west into the interior, again seeking lands that were fertile and secure from attack. But he could not move far enough to avoid the troubles that would fall upon his people as the decade wore on. For another people had begun an exodus. The Dutch settlers of the Cape were moving north, out from under the strengthening grasp of the British overlords of the Cape Colony. They were seeking land where they could retain their fierce and fundamentalist independence. The Boer Great Trek had begun, and the tough South African frontiersmen were locked on a collision course with Mzilikazi and the Matabele Nation. Boer patriarch Henrik Pottinger led his Voor trekkers across the Vaal River in the covered wagons pulled by oxen. A vast herd of cattle and sheep driven along in their wake. Mzilikazi could not tolerate this invasion of his lands, and he sent out an impi, a group of some 300 strong soldiers under his general Nkalipi, to drive them back. The Matabele regiments met the Vortrekkers on October 17, 1836. They boasted an overwhelming force, and they meant to overrun the white men. The Vortrekkers were ready. At the base of a low ridge they would call Battle Hill, they had circled their wagons and lashed and chained them together in a lagger, with thorn bushes blocking the gaps. They pulled these thorn bushes aside, and a delegation of 20 riders went out to meet the approaching Matabele. Nkalipi's men crouched on their haunches and heard the Boers bid them to avoid bloodshed and return to their kraals. But the Matabele did not come to parley. They had come to kill. Rising to their feet with a roar and a clatter of spears, they charged the horsemen. The Boers loosed a volley and rode off, reloading in the saddle. A running fight ensued as the Boers fired and retreated as the Matabeles chased them back to their lager, trying unsuccessfully to spear their mobile adversaries and drag them from the saddle. The thorn bushes were pulled back and the Boer riders made it safe inside the lager, where they prepared for the Matabele assault. They crouched in the grass in hot spring sun and waited. Inside their lager, 
the mere 35 adult Boer men, arrayed in defense, loaded their muskets with buck and ball and prayed. Mzilikazi and his Matabele charged from several directions at once. As they closed to 30 yards, the Boer muskets roared, spewing clouds of white smoke and deadly scythe of buckshot. The volley winnowed the Matabele ranks, but did not stop the charge. At close range, the buckshot charges were devastating, tearing apart the dense ranks of the charged Matabele. Still, the Matabele came on, reaching the wagons and stabbing at the defenders with their assegais. Warriors pushed against the wagon bends and rocked the wagons, attempting to dislodge or overturn them. One warrior reached through a gap, only to have his arm hacked off by an axe wielded by the wife of Abraham Swanopo. The Matabele reeled back from the improvised fortress and reformed their ranks for a second assault. This time, they stopped short of the lagger and delivered a volley of spears over the wagons. The spears were ineffective, and yet again, the Vortrekker fire tore up the ranks of the Matabele regiments. Mzilikazi and his general called off the attack. It had lasted a mere 15 minutes, but had left more than 150 of his men dead on the ground, and many bore devastating wounds that would kill them slowly. The Matabele rounded up the Vortrekker's cattle and sheep without opposition and limped away to the north. Mzilikazi's people had suffered a severe defeat, and the situation was about to get worse. On January 17, 1837, the Boer commandos fell upon the southernmost Matabele outposts in a storm of vengeance. The American missionaries bore witness to the slaughter. The Boers and their allies hit 13 to 15 kraals, shooting down both men and women as they fled in panic. Their Tswana Sotho allies glutting their spears in their blood of their enemies. Perhaps as many as 500 Matabele were slaughtered. The mobile commando might have devastated the Matabele nation, but their mission was not strategic. Recovery of livestock was the primary concern. And once the commando had rounded up 6,000 to 7,000 cattle, a mighty haul, they turned back south. But Mzikali's plague of troubles was not yet over. Another Zulu invasion struck in mid-1837. Again, the Matabele were able to fight their former tribesmen to a draw, but this time at the expense of a great loss of cattle. The Zulu assault was followed by more Grika Korana raids, and late in the year, the Boers returned in another commando that killed many warriors and swept up still more thousands of cattle. Sorely wounded, and with the wealth of the nation bleeding away in predatory raids, Mzilikazi realized that he must leave the country. Once again, the Matabele nation must take the trail of Exodus. This time they would move far to the north, beyond the Limpopo River, into the land known as Zimbabwe. The exodus north of the Limpopo would turn out to be the most significant and arduous fight in the relentless history of the Matabele. Mzilikazi gathered his scattered people 
and crossed the river into what is now Botswana. Again, the Matabele displaced those living in the territory, rounded up their cattle, and harvested their abandoned crops. These would sustain the people in the next phase of their long journey. They had raided across the Limpopo many times during the 1830s, and it's possible that even Mzilikazi was scouting out a potential new homeland. There he found that a usurper had taken his throne. Mzilikazi prevailed and executed several of the generals who had supported the usurper. Once Mzilikazi had re-established control, he set about rebuilding the Matabele state. He organized his army and established his military kraals. By the 1860s, the Matabele ruled unchallenged across a vast and fertile land between the Limpopo and Zambezi rivers. And, as white hunter Thomas Leesk reported, all the people living along the Zambezi are terribly afraid of the Matabele. But their king was failing. By the mid-1860s, Mzilikazi was a physical wreck. He was paralyzed from the waist down and had to be carried on a sedan chair. It's not clear what ailed the king, but it was clear that he was not long for the world. And the doom of the Matabele was at hand, though it would not materialize for another three decades. Mzilikazi had granted permission to Henry Hartley to hunt in the lands of the king's Mashoa vassals. There, Hartley found gold on the site of ancient mines, and thus was born in the imperial souls of the white men to the south, a legend of vast riches to be found in the lands of the Matabele, and a gold rush ensued that would soon spell the end to the Matabele nation. Mzilikazi would not live to see this gold lust bring the destruction of his people. In 1868, the fearsome crusher of peoples and builder of nations was no more. Mzilikazi is perhaps of all the frontier partisans profiled within this book, the most remarkable. While the rest either served as outriders of an empire or fought against the tide. Zilikazi single-handedly built his own empire, one of the great warrior nations of all history. The king's conquests were ruthless, bloody, and cruel, but no more so than Alexander the Great of Macedonia or any of the Roman Caesars. Zilikazi's personal qualities fitted him for conquest. While he was born into a royal line, it was a minor one, and he had no presumption of preeminence. He had to earn the right to rule. And the only way to do this was through fighting bravely, killing enemies, and winning loot. He did so well that he became a personal friend of the great and terrible Shaka Zulu that he was willing to defy his friend and overlord, knowing that the consequences would be his death and destruction of his tribe, is evidence of another key trait of Nzikali. He was an alpha male, unwilling 
nay, unable to submit himself to the will of another. He must be master or die. Perhaps the most remarkable quality of Mzilikazi as a warrior king was his resilience. Through great adversity of a terrible era in history of South Africa, his people never lost faith in him. Though a segment of his dispersed people replaced him when they thought he was dead, they never attempted to overthrow him. Unlike Shaka, who died at the hands of Zulu assassins. No Matabele ever made an attempt on the life of his king. At the great South African military, historian Ian Knight states, he had witnessed the rise of the great Shaka, defied him and survived. He had seen the coming of Boers and survived them too. He had conquered, lost almost everything, then conquered again and his legacy was his nation.